Jessie Greengrass won the Edge Hill Prize in 2016 for her phenomenal debut collection of short stories, an account of the decline of the great orc according to one who saw it. And her recent novel, Sight, was uh, shortlisted for the Bailey's Prize. Here to join us on stage is Jessie Greengrass and Polly. Are you going to hold her or am I going to hold her? Uh, she's, she's, she's all right. She's a real horror of strangers. Oh, well, then you hold her. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> she's very beautiful, Thanks. isn't she? <laughs> and she's been... Oh, that's a lovely smile, in fact. <laughs> Jesse, you've written um, a book about steeped in medicine about how we see others and look into them, mm. yeah? Beginning, in fact, with the discovery of x-rays. So it's, it's a book of fiction where a, a woman has recently lost her mother and then finds herself almost consumed by the whole business of film and then x-rays and how we're rendered our insides. What drew you to thinking about that? Um, I think I was... I was and have been for a long time kind of quite preoccupied with um, the problem of other minds, which is the, the fact that you can't, you can only sort of infer the existence of other people's um, thoughts from their outside. You're always kind of cut, kind of to an extent cut off, which is both a blessing insofar as it means that you have your own kind of private internal life and also um, a thing that can be terrifying because even the people that you are kind of closest to remain to an extent um, a mystery. Um, and so I think I was looking for ways to write about that um, and to use kind of knowledge of a body. So the fact that um, you are in fact kind of to a large extent unaware of the inside of your own body, it remains kind of mysterious to you. Um, and throughout history, it's kind of become less mysterious with each kind of discovery. So yeah. x-rays allowed people to see something that they had never been able to see before, which was um, a, a skeleton kind of in situ. Yeah. Um, and it kind of... And yet, did that kind of get any closer to sort of the central aspect? And there were this... Through this very short... Um, a short book, but incredibly dense. There are, you record various attempts, almost serendipitous or otherwise, for medicine to kind of penetrate mm. um, the the body. E even if so, so there's you know discovery of X-rays by Röntgen, Freud then um, forensic interrogation of the mind, and finally the, the Hunter brothers mm. and their you know surgical. Yeah. Explorations and rendering the body, but e at each at each phase of that medical history, looking at different aspects of what make us up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, the interesting <laughs> the interesting thing that arises there is that all of them are constantly falling short of something. Yeah. Circling something. Yeah, and I think that that kind of that. That falling short is probably kind of inevitable insofar as I don't know what it would mean to not fall short. I don't know what it would mean to 
to know someone in their entirety, um, even where it, and even where it possible, would you want to do it? I suppose was was kind of one of the things that I also began to think about. Would you? What would you lose if you were able to? Uh, if you were able to know an entire person in every respect. One of the questions you ask in there is whether or not. In, in the pursuit of sight, there's a loss of wonder, yeah. inevitably. Do you think that's the case? I think it's at least worth kind of considering, and I think that that came... I think, I think as far as I can remember, that in the book, that came out of kind of um, the X-rays and um, Ronkin's wife, yeah. who, um, who saw an X-ray. He, he w you know, had obviously... He spent this kind of very peculiar, very intense period of time in his laboratory by himself, like basically doing what anyone would do if they discovered x-rays, which was to just put everything yeah. into the x-ray. And the, and the paper that he wrote on it is extraordinary. It's just a list. It's like, I tried the door, I tried a <laughs> box, I tried my fate, you know, like... like um, and so after this kind of extraordinary kind of period of time, the first person that he showed... This, the first person he showed it to was his wife, and he x-rayed her hand, and she said that it was like seeing herself dead, and I just thought... It, that was extraordinary, that, that what he had seen was, was not what she had seen, and what she had seen had been somehow a, an end, like her own death, but also a kind of a, a mystery that shouldn't have been penetrated, I think. And it's interesting, was when you first, when I read that, I thought, well, it, <clears throat> wonder isn't sacrifice to seeing, but then I realised that every day I'll look through tens of scans much you know infinitely more detailed than what yeah. they had quite casually scrolled through them and I, it, I don't feel any particular astonishment every so often I will for yeah. reasons that aren't obvious to me think holy cow but actually most of the time they're just mundane appearances so, so there is some truth in that I think yeah and I think I think x-rays are a, a kind of a sort of prime example of that and that they in, in the sort of 10 years after they were first discovered before everyone worked out that there was a reason why doctors were losing their hands. Um, it, it, it became this enormous sort of popular phenomenon. So people were terrified of uh, X-ray glasses, which obviously became the preserve of comics later. Yeah. But initially it was kind of, you know, the popular press thought that it really would be possible for someone to go to the opera in X-ray glasses and just look through ladies' dresses. Um, and that, that was kind of... But also you could go to... Um, you could kind of go to county fairs and there would be an x-ray machine and you could kind of pay a pound and put your hand in. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, it, and it really was sort of the future. And now it's just... It's just taken... You know, like you, you, it's just ubiquitous. The, the image of kind of an x-ray skeleton is kind of... You know, it's a Halloween costume. It's... And interestingly, when you get, particularly when you go on to talk about Freud, it becomes clear that even, <clears throat> even in being consumed by the desire to see more clearly into another doesn't nearly make us much better at it. So he, here he was, exposing the follies of mm. humanity, our unconscious drives, etc., etc. But in his engagement with his own immediate family, yeah. was not necessarily um, functional. Yeah. Absolutely, and he, he um, although even that kind of, the more I kind of looked at it, the more sort of ambiguous it seemed. So he um, psychoanalyzed Anna, yes, um, which obviously, you know, psychoanalyzing your own daughter is pretty much a no-no. Um, but 
but what she gained from it was um, was her life really like she um, as, as a kind of as a woman in um, in the particular society that she was in she didn't have a lot of choices she was the youngest daughter really what was expected of her was that she would stay at home and look after her parents and and through this kind of analysis what she was given was um, a, a tremendous career yeah, at least, you know yeah. absolutely yeah. Um, but you know does that justify what he mm. what he did mm. does does the fact that she was an adult I mean that she could consent. I don't know. You know, all of those issues sort of. <coughs> it feel... looms quite large in the book. Psychoanalysis. Yeah. Is that an interest? Is that particularly of an interest to you? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I was I, w I was sort of quite unwell through my twenties and had quite a lot of various different forms of therapy, which uh, in the end was terrifically successful. So that is um, that's good. Um, but it's it's kind of the the encounters that I had throughout that were with kind of many different forms of therapy, many different professionals, and it kind of left me with an, a sort of interest in what it was that... I was <laughs> going to suggest giving yeah, her the monkey, but I don't think monkey. I can face looking... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, have the monkey. Uh, um, <laughs> um, yeah, so it kind of left me with an, with an interest in, um, in what what constitutes successful therapy, what the goals of it are. Um, it's very open to challenge in modern medicine. Lots of um, doubt about the yeah. value, let alone the methodology of it. Absolutely, and I think, you know, I, can, I sort of feel that even with respect to my own life. I kind of think, did that decade of uh, medical intervention was that what made me better or did I just grow up? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, did I just grow out of it? Would that have happened anyway? Um, that, that's kind of, it's not a quantifiable thing. And so I suppose I've kind of tried to think about what, what value it might have been regardless of that question. And I think, um, I'm not sure that without that I would have been a writer. Certainly I wouldn't have been the writer that I am, I think. And so the process thereof, which is a process of sight mm. in itself. Um, yeah with another individual is what is it is it a way of looking with them or finding one a way to look at you helping to see yourself i think so i mean i very much felt that it was a process of learning something which most people know either instinctually or have learned very early on in their lives so much so that that knowledge is kind of unquestioned <laughs> It's knowledge that you don't know that you have. Um, and to kind of sit down with another person and have them kind of talk you through that as an adult um, is pretty humiliating. Um, but it is also, I mean, it's also kind of a gift, you know, like that to you, you understand the extent to which you can kind of see your own thoughts because you've had, because it's been made explicit through that kind of therapeutic the extent to which you're almost opaque to yourself without yeah, absolutely. it. Yeah. <clears throat> you, might we have a little reading? Yes. While we have a, uh, how are we going to work this? Are you all right? Yeah, okay. we're fine. We're fine. We've, we've got form. She might try and chew the book. but um, uh, I don't, I've got to, I've got, Do you want, do you want a, a medical bit? or a, um, Yeah, um, probably. Yeah. Go for it. Why not? Let me just have a bit of a... <laughs> So this is um, 
in the third section of the book, and it is, you don't really need to know very much, it's about the Hunter brothers. On a cold winter morning in 1750, three men stood in a Covent Garden basement. In front of them, spread across a table, illuminated by that grey early light in which facts appear immutable, lay the body of a heavily pregnant woman. Her corpse, unearthed that night from one of London's mass graveyards, had just been delivered, brought round to the back door of William Hunter's recently founded anatomy school. Beyond this, her history was unknown. Her name and place of birth, where she had lived and how or who might mourn her, what it was that had killed her and her child so close to term that the baby's head, as they would shortly find, had already settled into her pelvis, engaging itself ready for birth. Aside from William, aspiring obstetrician and social climber, lecturer in the anatomy school, which was still both novelty and controversy, with the majority of medical professionals regarding a knowledge of the body's geography as tangential to their craft, and the dead woman, whose body had become possession and exemplar, an object of interest only its generality, in the ways that it was like all others beneath its particularising skin. Those present were John Hunter, William's younger brother, and the artist Jan van Remsdijk, who had been called quickly out of bed at the news of the woman's arrival. The body's decay, though slowed by the cold weather, necessitated haste. John had been in London barely two years and was as yet in his brother's shadow, his character and ambition not quite set, his restless curiosity still mistakable for adolescent zeal, but he had already shown himself to be a remarkable anatomist, certainly more adept than William, and so it is likely that it was he who performed the delicate operation of this unnamed woman's unpeeling, the careful parting of skin and muscle like the drawing back of heavy curtains to give sight of the horizon beyond, the injection of blood vessels with a mixture of wax and dye so that their pathways might be visible, a new-drawn map of territory claimed, and then at last the long incision in her uterus and the uncovering of that which none of them had seen before and few others had thought to look for, an unborn baby, full term, curled tightly on the pillow of its placenta. While John worked, a leather apron tied over his ordinary clothes, Jan van Rimsdijk made a series of drawings which would eventually, reproduced as engravings, form the foundation of William's greatest work, the anatomy of the gravid uterus exhibited in figures, an atlas of the female body at each stage of pregnancy. And both John Hunter and Jan van Rimsdijk had cause to wonder later what fraction of the labour involved was William's that he should put his name so obviously to it. The idea, perhaps, the raising of subscriptions later and the hiring of engravers, true, but neither the skill of the enterprise nor its art. These drawings and the others that Remsdijk would make for William Hunter over the next two decades are extraordinary. In these first pictures, while the woman is reduced to meaty torso, her upper body invisible or removed, the severed ends of her thigh bones visible where her legs have been sawn off, the baby is both whole and beautiful. It might be sleeping there, this child, waiting ready for the moment of that birth which has been forever put off. Its hair, whereat the nape it curls, is detailed by Rimsdijk's pencil, strand by strand. The neck itself, a tightly folded shrug, the sight of which brings back to me with an immediacy of detail the memory of my own daughter at birth, the firmness of her skin, the unexpected solidity she had like a well-packed parcel, and the way she smelt of biscuits and sweet tea. The baby's ear is flattened slightly, misshapen by long confinement as the ears of newborns often are, the fingers of its right hand curl up about its face, which is hidden from us, turned in towards its mother's body, as it would have done, held in her arms in life. The other arm, stretched out, lies along the rounded body, pointing up to where, beneath the loft raft, lost rafters of its mother's ribs, the baby's feet lie folded. And I can neither bear the sight of it, nor turn away, because in all these things I see the way that living children lie, their unconscious assumptions of protection and their trust, the way they turn towards us, sturdy bodies lying nested into half-crooked arms, and it is easy to suppose these things come into being without sight of them, and so to think ourselves responsible 
deserving of credit, that it is our actions after birth that call faith forth, a child's reaction to the specificities of ourselves, our care and kindness. But the truth is that these things predate our meeting. Love exists regardless of ourselves and is unearned or got on credit. These gestures echoing those already made and made again. The child inside me turning over as I go about my business unaware. The only power that we are given to maintain or to destroy. And this is why it is such agony to hold a sleeping child. The certainty it brings us that trust is a gift. Fragile like an egg in certain places. And so we must be careful with it. Holding it in our outstretched hands and trying to make them a shape that it will fit. All these, pres these things are present in Rimsdijk's drawing. Not a sentimentality or sympathy, but only as a clear-eyed fidelity an accuracy of line and tone, the reproduction of nothing more than what was seen. You've written about... <clears throat> the, the, the narrator of the of site is wondering about her responsibility to... Uh, planned or uh, expected child. Yeah. And you yourself have written, in fact, also about the position of um, femininity or women and the expectation of having children. Yeah. As, if, as if to not... to choose not to have children is almost um, an abdication of a particular assigned responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Can you just say a bit about that? Um, I mean, I think it is kind of a, a frustration for um, for many women who, I mean, for many women in any situation, that, that it is expected that you should want to have children um, and then be able to do it. And I think that obviously um, that's, that's not the case. And I think that it's also, I mean, I didn't find it an easy decision to make at all. I didn't kind of wake up and think oh, I'm biologically compelled to have a child. I kind of went, I mean, I think I want to, but what would it mean? You know, you, you have a child and then that's it. You can't, you can't change your mind. You really are kind of committed to it um, for, for a very long time. Um, what happens if you hate it? What happens if you're bad at it? You don't, like, I didn't kind of internally sort of feel myself to be a mother, I felt, I felt like I've all, you know, I felt like I've always felt, I still feel like I'm about 15 and sort of largely incompetent. Um, and, and so I, and, and I really, there didn't seem to be a place for that discussion. There didn't seem to be a place for women to talk about it, to say that it was difficult, to say that they regretted it, to say that they decided not to do it. Um, and once the decision has been made for or against, whether it's made through choice or made, um, you know, as it, as it is for many women because they find themselves unable to have a child, the end result is that you're judged for it um, for the rest of your life, you know, and that, that conversation is, is constantly in, in the background. Um, but, but also, I guess, as part of the calculus there, it was, it was also, as well as the potential um, weight of it, there was also a sense of, if this is going to be a choice, what is my responsibility to this individual? That if yeah. in, in, in choosing to have a child, it has to be not just about my own wishes yeah. to be adored or um, necessary, but what I owe this yeah. person. And how do I 
you know, fathom and articulate that responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I think I've, I feel kind of persistently between low level irritated and absolutely furious at the idea that it's selfish not to have a child because mm. I cannot imagine anything more selfish than thinking, you know what, I'm just going to make a person. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, because I want to. Mm. Um, and like, that's why you do it in the end, isn't it? It's because, it's because you, just, you just quite want... You just quite want one. Like there isn't, you know, there isn't another. There isn't a better. And it just seems extraordinary that that to have that that we're expected to to not have thought about it deeply. That we're expected not to talk about that thought process. Um, yeah. You know. I think these things seem to, to me to converge in um, the the narrator of the books pursuit of sight and I, therefore by inference I imagine your own thinking that if, ev if even if it's impossible to see finally clearly into things that are disappearing away fractal like we have responsibility to try because of this responsibility to other life yeah I mean I think we also have a responsibility to ourselves yeah. I think that yes I think that it, you know we have a responsibility to to all of the people around us to attempt and actually, I think that if you do engage in any kind of long process of interrogation for whatever reason, the in, I think that probably the result of that for most people will be to understand that it's not, ultimately it's not what you see that's important, it's the process of trying to see. To see. It's the, the kind of, yeah, the, the act of attempting to understand more than the eventual understanding. And is writing, a, a, for you, a method of doing that? Yeah, very much so, I think. I get really grumpy if I don't, <laughs> if I don't write for a long period of time, I think, because I, it is the way that I kind of sort through my own kind of thoughts about the world and about, um, you know, my family, and um, it's a way of kind of imposing order. And I think that it's easy to forget the extent to which that's what writing does. It, it, it imposes a narrative and a structure on the world. Um, imposes it or reveals it? I think it... I think... It's hard to say, but I think probably... It does impose it to a large extent. Or at least it chooses which out of many threads to follow. And I think once you've, once you've looked at the, the multitude of things that are left out of any story, you, you kind of... I think I've right, so snatches. To, yeah. Yeah, and and those ones that you've picked to put in there are the ones that you've chosen in order to make a point, um, and it's not evidence based. So. What's about um, reading? Does that have? Do you think that has a similar parallel effect? I think, yeah. Although I think <coughs> that at its best, if you read, if you kind of consciously attempt to read beyond yourself, then it allows you. It allows the world to expand. I mean, I feel like I've learned pretty much everything about everything that I know <laughs> from from reading. You know, fiction, mostly fiction, mm. not not entirely. I mean, I've learned a lot of the sort of facts that I can talk about in the pub from non-fiction. But what I've learned from fiction is is how to be a person. I think. You've come all the way down from Scotland <laughs> yesterday on a train with Polly, yeah. exhausting. And I just want to particularly, I mean, all our speakers do as well, but you've, it's been a gargantuan um, <laughs> effort and it's a real delight to have her here as well as you. So just a big Thank round of you. applause for <laughs> Jess and Polly. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much.